0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of Talking Additives' second season.
1: And you know, I always say, if you're manufacturing anything, you should have a 3D printer there to help make your process more efficient.
0: That was Matt Tarosian, Director of Product Management at Jabil for Materials. We met over the phone late this summer to discuss how Jabil draws on its long-standing experience with manufacturing materials to produce engineering-grade polymer filaments for manufacturing processes and in-use parts. Matt has worked in manufacturing polymers for more than 30 years. He sees the additive manufacturing industry as still in its adolescence, which means an important if challenging stage during which many discoveries are being made, processes validated, and startling transformations are possible
1: as the adoption of 3D printing technology continues to increase. In the manufacturing world, it's a challenge, I think, to, to Ultimaker and to Jabil and everybody in the additive industry to educate people in the factory level, people at the design level, and eventually people in the production part level that additive can meet the requirements of the application. If you spell out those requirements properly and you approach it from an engineering and scientific approach, But if you're just going to throw something at the wall and see if it sticks and it fails, don't be surprised. Jabil is one of the largest
0: manufacturing service providers in the world. A leading expert in manufacturing materials and processes, a $26 billion company that manufactures for the top 350 brands in the world. Their factory ecosystem has already deployed these solutions for their own print cells for several years. And they continue to introduce new materials to the market, shared to the Ultimaker Materials Alliance, that help their manufacturer customers around the world increase their capabilities for jigs, fixtures, tooling, and even in use parts. Jabil Additive is a dynamic team within JBILL that addresses the new challenges and opportunities offered by additive manufacturing design for manufacturing, tooling strategies, AM parts production, and also AM materials, such as the new filament products we're talking about today. Their aim to be forerunners of the manufacturing industry adoption of 3D printing, disrupting traditional expectations about manufacturing tooling and fabrication as the team prepares Jabil for a future in which AM technologies such as FFF play a key everyday role in in in-use parts as well as manufacturing aids. Efforts to adopt AM right now have a big implication for future readiness within manufacturing and the supply chain, as evidenced by the current COVID-19 disruption. As Matt and I discussed when planning for this episode, who among us could have pictured that FFF 3D printing would play such an extensive role on the factory floor of major manufacturers looking even five years back? We'll explore this topic and more on Talking Additive, Season 2. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within manufacturing and on the factory floor? And what will be possible in the future? Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays, every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. Thank you, Matt, for joining us today on Talking Additive. Let's start with your background to provide a context for what we will discuss. You were telling me a little bit of this story, but how did you first encounter 3D printing and 3D printing materials?
1: So my name is Matt Tarosian. I am a director of product management at Jable for Materials. I saw my first FDM printer in, in 95, my wife was a product manager for a housewares company and asked me, um, being an industry person in the plastics industry to go check out some guys that were 3d printing a prototype for a proof of concept part for her companies. And she said, why don't you go, uh, these guys are making this prototype part. Most of their stuff was done in Asia, but this was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. These guys are making a prototype part. Why don't you go check it out? So I I went and uh, checked it out in this guy's garage. His kid was running a 3D printing shop, and they were making some prototypes on some early FDM machines. And there's a bunch of cars, like classic gullwing Mercedes and all these great cars. (laughs) And his son was running this 3D print business out of the garage. And that was in like 95. Wow. And Uh, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world didn't see it in the plastics industry until really several years later as companies started to buy machines for prototyping and, and proof of concept parts.
0: Well, you, you've seen so much change, like that time period. Yeah. The roles for plastic then compared to now? Yeah. Same. Totally. So when you first saw that printed part back in 95 and, and saw the process of the, the printing, did you anticipate your interest in 3D printing that would follow?
1: But it was certainly interesting to me being a, a more of a technical person on the plastic side of the industry i wasn't just a seller I was, I was a plastic engineer by by education. it was interesting to me and i thought it was amazing but it wasn't widespread enough for me to really be engaged yeah. until about seven or eight years ago when i was selling materials to some of the uh, companies that were 3d printing and making filaments it took a long time for me to really see or think about what a career might look like in the additive manufacturing industry.
0: So the compounding work that you're doing earlier, is it safe to assume it was injection molding materials? It was compounding uh,
1: materials, but really it was for all industries. It was for extrusion, sheet, injection molding, blow molding, mm. any industry in the plastics uh, marketplace that needed something more than just neat resin.
0: And what kind of engineering properties were you targeting?
1: Really, a lot of the things that we do now at Jable, things like reinforcements, fillers, functional fillers, carbon black, carbon fiber, things that impart electrostatic properties, fillers, functional fillers for flame retardancy, and then a whole list of uh, fillers as well for uh, wear, friction, and lubrication, which is a big part of the plastics industry. A lot of people don't think of a lot of materials have. Things to impact coefficient of friction and how material wears against other surfaces, gears, wear plates, or even squeak. If you don't put the right additive into a material and it's rubbing against another material, it'll squeak and be quite annoying. and friction is a big area that's, I think has a lot of potential uh, for additive. It's it's something that a lot of people don't think about, and if you do it right, they won't think about it. Right. <laughs> but to my point about the squeaking earlier, if you have components going into a, into an into a cabin of an automobile, and and you haven't designed your parts right, a or put the right uh, functional fillers in and, and lubricants to manage wear and friction, the inside of the car would be a disaster. Every t- every door you opened would squeak. Every time you hit a bump, it would be loud. So just in that one use case of automotive. There's huge implications, but when it's done, no one really notices and and it works well.
0: When you ever hear like a squeaky part, does this part of you think, oh, I need to put a little bit more of this functional filler in there?
1: Definitely. And we always say that everybody in the plastics industry is ruined for life because everything you pick up or touch that's plastic. I you know, have a thought about it. Right? Could I 3D print this? Could it, Could it, Where's the gate? Why isn't this label sticking? What happened? It's just one of those inquisitive things that you get from being in an industry where you ask questions about why and want to understand why things work and why they don't. So you
0: had seen a part in 95 when printing was basically it was rapid prototyping, it was used very specifically for either concept parts, late concept parts, or for manufacturing validation parts, things like that. When did you start to think about and work more with 3D printing?
1: Yeah, I, I think it, in the early 2000s, or let's say uh, around 2005, I started to see some of the more sophisticated injection molders and, and OEMs that I was dealing with were getting prototypes and proof of concept 3D printed parts. So it wouldn't be uncommon to be talking about a new program for injection molding and the design engineers would come in with an SLA part or an FFF part to say, here's what the geometry looks like. Here's what we're trying to do. Can you provide a material that meets these requirements and can be molded in this application? That was where I first started to see it more and more. And then in late 2009, 2009, 2010, I started to sell materials to some of the manufacturers that were making filament. Mm. And that's when, from my perspective anyway, see it more pronounced in the industry and certainly more in my field of view in the marketplace.
0: What was it like preparing materials for FFF? Was that tremendously different or processes you were already pretty much aware of and you, you could prepare for the technology?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Matt, because it was not easy and the fff filament producers really had not a lot of good experience or understanding of the extrusion process and how that can impact the material's performance both in printing and in function once the part is complete so there was a lot of sampling and a lot of questions going on about what they wanted and and us trying to deliver it and as a compounder that had no understanding of the process once it was put into a filament, it was very difficult because there was a lot of very secretive organizations that didn't want to tell us anything, and, and you can't help somebody if they don't tell you what, the, what they're trying to do or what they're trying to accomplish. It was difficult to provide materials to that industry, and I think, I think that's one of the things that Jabel's trying to do now is change that mentality mm-hmm. about developing materials for filaments and, and for powders for that matter have to understand the process to be able to formulate and provide the right raw material to make a good product that's going to be robust and be able to be consistent and meet the uh, performance requirements.
0: It's been interesting talking to some folks who were in the early days of 3D printing materials, but didn't have a plastics background. They would essentially mislabel materials. They'd even say this sort of behaves kind of like an ABS. So we're gonna call it ABS Mm -hmm. and there might be very low or no ABS content. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that was different from the much longer history of injection molding materials where the customer needed to know a lot more about how it behave. Am I characterizing that correctly?
1: I think so. I think in the modern era, especially in additive, because it's in its adolescence, as far as a technology, I think it's very IP centric. And and I think it's IP-centric even to a detriment to the overall industry. And you have to have some IP restrictions and ownership, but it is definitely not. The Wild West, back in the injection molding days, you know, people were sharing information left and right, and no one really cared about gaining an advantage. They just wanted to succeed in whatever part they were trying to produce. Whereas that additive has come of age in this time when you know IP is so guarded, and I think that's evident by the closed systems that are out there. I think they've restricted the the growth of the industry because of their closed nature in, in regards to materials. It restricts the marketplace in size because the cost of a part is extremely expensive in some cases because closed system materials are so expensive. And that limits the available marketplace at that particular price point.
0: There are opportunities for better communicating with customers, all the way down to their engineers, being able to better characterize and, and use more of the capabilities. I appreciate hearing it from you with your your deep background in plastics.
1: 2006 is when I went to work for a compounder. And that's when I was started to see parts, really, customers having proof of concept parts because I was working a lot of programs. Yeah, Okay. That were new parts that they needed a material for. And and we would see customers come to us and say, here's our model. Here's our 3D printed concept of this part. We need a material that's going to be able to perform, have these mechanicals, have this attribute, whether that's wear and friction, strength, or conductivity, uh, or color. And then we would we would develop a material that we thought would meet that requirement for injection molding. But that's when I started to see it, certainly from 2006 on the prominent piece of the prototype proof of concept phase of a product life cycle.
0: When did you shift from working for a materials company to working in-house within a company that has a huge number of manufacturing capabilities in its portfolio?
1: When I was in the plastics industry and selling to some of the 3D print companies, I came pretty close with a, a, a guy that ended up hiring me to take this job. And he basically sold me on it by two things. He said, Jable is the only company you'll ever work for that you'll have extreme customer intimacy. So you'll be connected to OEMs at the point of design. Yeah. And, and they will take that customer and scale anything anywhere in the world. And, and to my answer to that was who's Jable? Jable, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's a Jable? <laughs> and, uh, Right, and he explained to me more, and we talked a little more, and then it was all about additive. And I was at that point in my career where I needed something interesting that was that was that could keep me occupied from an intellectual standpoint and keep that curiosity about the plastics industry motivated beyond the the last thirty years that I had just working on injection molding. And it was intriguing to me, so, so it's one of the ways that I I think I hopefully convinced them to hire me and and, and pursued it for kind of all those reasons.
0: So now that you've been at Jabil for a while, have the challenges that you're facing satisfied some of that curiosity?
1: Absolutely. It's been 10 times better than I ever really imagined. I, th- I think the additive industry, again, it, it, I categorize it as adolescent. There's a long way to go, mm-hmm. but it's it's come a long way. And the, the excitement around, and we always tease about it, changing the world, is, is gonna be here for a long time. You can just see just what's happened recently with COVID and the supply chain disruption that's occurred. Additive is at a major role in filling the gaps in PPE, ramping up scale production in North America for ventilators. There's really nowhere in the supply chain today that's not being disrupted by COVID and additive is at the forefront of really helping that process along to shift supply chains from a global perspective to more of a local perspective.
0: It was exciting seeing the public suddenly become aware of additive in this kind of way, seeing all the the PPE COVID relief projects. But then there was even more happening on the manufacturing side. And you saw a a lot more internally. Are there things that you could share with Talking Additive listeners about some of the ways that manufacturing was using 3D printing to do things like changeovers and um sure yeah
1: sure yeah and and <clears throat> I think some of these are, are quite public the one of the biggest ones we had is splitters, so it's a, a splitter is a device used for a ventilator to take one ventilator and use it for up to four different people, so we ramped up production in weeks to go from zero to i think we produced mm-hmm. seven hundred and fifty thousand splitters in about a it was eight, maybe eight week time frame. Wow! <laughs> uh, so every machine that we had was printing splitters. Yeah, it bl- blows you away. And I, and I, and I think uh, to your comment earlier, I think the public did become somewhat aware about what 3D printing did for for PPE and some of the other things. But sometimes I wonder too if you and I and people in the industry were aware of it because we saw it every day in our LinkedIn and we and we we're touching Mm -hmm. customers and things that are impacted by the 3D printing and and how it affected the supply chains. But I don't think the general population really were that exposed to it because you wouldn't see a whole lot of stories about, it might be a snippet in a thing on uh, a, a news bite on one of the news media outlets, or there might be a snippet here or there, but by and large, my conversations with the non-3D printing public were, why don't we just start up a plant and make uh, ventilators? Why haven't we done that yet? Or why aren't we producing millions of swabs in two weeks or three weeks or a month or two? I think the general public, I don't think understands what it takes to stand up capacity for a regulated industry like healthcare and do it quickly. Fortunately, the regulatory piece, I think, has been certainly quickened by the crisis of COVID-19, but that's only a a small piece of the overall puzzle where you've got to design, prove out a concept, and then put together an assembly line with equipment, validate all that, and make sure it's repeatable, and and turn it into a regulated production facility. That's a in non COVID times, that's a two year proposition. Hmm. We've been able to do it. And, and a lot of other companies over the last uh, six months and in, in two or three months, which is, well, that's a, a fourth to a, a fifth of the time that it normally take. So that to me is impressive. I'm, I couldn't be more ecstatic about the impact that the manufacturing industry has made on COVID, even though I think the general population would say, well, it's just not fast enough. I don't think they understand what it takes to do these things (laughs) in a medical environment. I'll
0: ask you some more questions about some of these processes uh, as we go along. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to take one last moment on the focus in your background. So you're a plastics engineer, a thermoplastics expert. What are things from your background that really helped you uh, when you started serving more challenges within additive manufacturing
1: the the very first exposure i had beyond my customers was i went to tct in birmingham nice. three years ago one of the very first things i'm looking around wide-eyed at all these different printing processes and parts and just amazing things that these people have printed i think there was a giant hogwarts there and just very cool stuff i stopped and talked to this booth and i still have the bellows on my desk this guy had a flexible part. It was a TPE, a thermoplastic elastomer. And he he said, what do you know about our, our company? What do you know about our material? This is a thermoplastic elastomer. And I said, well, that's pretty neat. I like bellows are cool. What is it? And he said, well, it's a really cool part. It's a bellows and you can see it's got a lot of memory. And it's, I said, okay, let's stop right there. What is it? What's the material? Well, he said, it's a TPE. I said, no, please help me understand what material this is. And he just didn't get it, right? To him, it was a cool part. Right. And it was. But that doesn't tell me anything about putting a part into what ultimately Jabel's end goal is, is to put things into production parts. Right. Production parts have engineered properties, engineered requirements, things that the material and the part function has to accomplish. And if you don't know what the material is, and the composition, and how it behaves, and what the physical properties are, it's just a cool part that's going to sit on your desk. That's and One of the things I preach all the time is you really have to understand materials and the attributes of those materials and the physical properties of those materials and how the process impacts that. If you're ever going to have additive manufacturing parts in a fully functional production environment, not just a fixture or tooling, but an actual additive part that gets sold to somebody.
0: I've had conversations with folks. TPE is the the wider generic term for right the type uh, the class of material. But I've actually had conversations with folks where they say oh oh this is not a TPU it's a TPE. <laughs> okay, great.
1: Yeah, it's the wrong way.
0: So, I'm like, well, so which one is it? And they're like, oh no, this this is a special thing. This is a TPE. And I'm like, but isn't that the broader term?
1: Yes. It, 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 you know, I think you hit it spot on, uh, and and TPEs. That's one of the even injection molding people talk about it the same way, but you really have to look at TPEs being the umbrella, all materials that are rubber like, yeah, and then and then the categories underneath it: TPU, SCBS, PEBA, copolyester, even down to reactor TPOs that come straight out of a reactor. That is the group of TPEs and and anything below it can be called a TPE. And that's one of the reasons why we added TPE SEBS to our SEBS elastomer. Uh, When we first released it, it was just SEBS, our SEBS, and no one knew what it was. Um, Now, if I said Kraton, more people in the injection molding industry would know and understand what that is. If you've ever held an OXO kitchen utensil or a mountain bike grip for your bicycle, or just about any mat that sits inside your car, yeah. most of that's Crayton. That's one of, one of the trade names for SEBS.
0: Interesting. I, I think you're putting your finger on something really key here. I think a lot of folks who are in 3D printing, they're in additive, but they're actually not from manufacturing outside that context. The focus is often on showing a capability but not necessarily understanding what that part and its capabilities mean in the context of use. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a tremendous advantage that you were you know, quite the veteran in really serving pretty challenging applications with materials, even before you you start spending a lot of time with machines that can do all these different forms of them. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm guilty of this too. I'll get excited about uh way a material behaves, and then not even think about is this really the right material to use for this? It it does something that looks like and feels like the the intended use, but this is not the material that's usually used for that. For maybe some good reasons.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no. Exactly. And 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 elastomers are a great example to ping on because there's a couple of very simple properties that, that people can identify with. Like right. Durometer. How hard is it? How soft is it? But the and that'll tell you a little bit. But then the what's the base polymer? Is it a TPU? Is it a styrene-based elastomer? Or is it a copolyester? All those have an impact on what the end-use application performance is going to be. So if it's a styrene-based, it probably doesn't have great chemical resistance. If it's TPU, can't have it around a lot of moisture and heat because those materials have issues with those kinds of environments. And then Chemical resistance, grease, oils, how do they impact that part's performance? And all of those impact the rubber-like properties, which this guy that I talked to at TCT, good guy, probably knew and understand 3D printing really well, but didn't understand anything about, I was asking him about compression set, flex fatigue, and things that you need to know about a bellows, right? How many cycles can that bellows compress and relax before it cracks? Absolutely no clue about any of that stuff. So elastomers are a good one because I think people relate to rubber. They understand rubber bands, stretchy, goes back, that's great. It's an easy thing to visualize, <laughs> but all those properties are critical to any application. And we're really trying to build a base uh, of materials at Jable that, that do fixtures and tooling, but let's face it, the end goal is, is production parts, whether that's a uh, mass customization, <laughs> a 3D printed shoe that shows up at your house in a couple of days or a custom made helmet for whatever your sports activity is. That production environment is, is where we want to all get to. It's the holy grail. And there are a few examples out there. We make production parts for some of the 3D printing companies today but it's not as broad-based as we'd like to see it. And that's why, again, I call it an adolescent technology. It's not quite there yet, but it's certainly, we're starting to see more and more production applications. As we do that, there's a whole generation of engineers that are in the industry that deal with injection molding that need to be educated on what's another tool in my toolbox to deliver this part. And, and when additive becomes another tool like injection molding or blow molding or extrusion in their toolbox will hit that production marketplace that we all think that additive is going to be at at some point in the future.
0: Let's move over from talking about you and your background to to your role at Jabil okay. and how Jabil is involved with additive manufacturing.
1: Sure. So I work in a group within Jabil called Jabil Additive. So that's Jabil Additive Manufacturing. And within that group, I sit in the materials group and what we call our products let's for lack of a better term jable engineered materials is our our group of of products within jable additive jable as a whole as far as additive manufacturing goes uh, really splits into three primary buckets one is just parts and that's production parts and service bureau parts we have materials where we develop materials uh, for additive manufacturing to be used either externally or internally by our parts business. And then and then we have the third bucket is where we we help jable manufacturing and business development apply 3D printing technology to whatever their area of responsibility is. Hmm. So if it's production, we help them understand what kind of machines do you need to use, what kind of materials do you need to use and support them in their efforts for fixtures and tooling. If it's business development, we help what we call pitch and catch, where we're helping our business development people put the right capabilities Mm -hmm. in front of customers. And then we can help them also quote and stand up capacity along with everything from work instructions, quality management systems, and everything needed to stand up print sales on a global basis. So we we support operations and business development in all of those efforts. So that's bucket number three.
0: Do you spend time? in all three or exclusively in like materials development?
1: Sure. Uh, primarily I'm in materials development, but if, if you think about those other two buckets, we interact with all of them because we we develop materials for people and parts when they have requirements that they can't meet. That makes perfect sense. Or they don't have a material available in the marketplace to meet um, those requirements. And then on the other side, we help understand the technologies and advise them on materials that they can use and can't use. and. and trying to put the best tools in their toolbox to meet customer requirements.
0: Tell me the origin of Jabil. How long has Jabil been around and how big a company
1: is it? Sure. So Jabil is, we say we're the the brand behind the brand. It's a, a large contract manufacturer. We're about a $26 billion company. Which is mind-blowing because no one ever has heard of us, <laughs> um, which is okay. We make things for other people, that we say the top 350 brands globally are who we manufacture for. Um, and Jabel actually is a derivative of James and Bill, who started the company in a garage in Michigan about 51 years ago. Um, so it's kind of interesting where the name origin is, and it helps me explain to people how to actually pronounce it. It's not Jabil. Uh, It's J. Bill, James and Bill.
0: When you look at the titles of a lot of the largest contract manufacturers and factories, J. Bill feels like this international term. I love hearing the origin.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it sounds really, really neat. And then then you find out it's a couple guys in a garage uh, refurbishing circuit boards.
0: So the early expertise was mostly around... Electronics? electronics yeah
1: yes jable it used to be jable circuit so for the first 25 years i think primarily it was contract manufacturing circuit boards printed circuit boards surface mount technologies to for circuit boards and and then over time that's shifted to more these circuit boards go into a product so we started doing some of the assembly around the circuit board and that's escalated and grown to where we do everything from Disney bands, the bands that go on your wrist, the when you go to disney and and, and you want to fast pass to wind turbines. Jable really manufactures everything in between and we 've taken technologies that we 've learned over those decades of manufacturing and apply that technology to our manufacturing process to win business, which exactly describes why Jabil is so deeply invested in additive. If manufacturing in the future is gonna be additive based, Jabil wants to make sure that we don't miss that opportunity and actually we use additive to disrupt the current supply chain and, and bring that technology forward.
0: When did the Jabil Additive unit start?
1: Okay, so that happened about five years ago was the initial concept and then over the last three years really heavy investment in materials in technology and we print everything now from titanium for implants to fixtures and tooling at injection molders and for ourselves
0: is like the additive team is it distributed across Jabel's global footprint or mostly concentrated in certain sites
1: uh, we have about six uh, Jable additive sites globally, and about 25 sites that are actually doing printing that we support from materials and technology standpoint. But many times in a Jable manufacturing site, that print cell, as we call it, might be 10, 12, 15 printers. Many times Ultimakers, many times, sometimes others are, are on that site and run by a local SME that would be responsible for making sure that those applications get developed, that the printers run properly, that they have a right maintenance schedule, and that everything runs smoothly. So we rely heavily on those local SMEs and champions of additive at each of those 25 sites outside of our Jabil additive sites. So they're usually owned by the manufacturing site.
0: Is the Auburn Hills facility, is
1: that? That's a Jabil manufacturing site. And the site there has an SME and a group of about four engineers that have not not all dedicated roles to additive, but a lot of them are tooling engineers and they're they're responsible for, and this is very, that's the model that we use at many sites. They're there to identify applications with the people from the shop floor and make sure that those applications get converted and and validated so they can be used in, in production. And of course, to run the printers and make sure that that the printers are running well. Print cells usually reside within the operations of of a particular site, and they're viewed as almost like a tool room within the site. So they really are very supplemental to a tool room on site Mm -hmm. when we put print cells into manufacturing sites, at least for fixtures and tooling.
0: When Jabil started additive, were there already additive materials development happening, or is that sort of the beginning of it? for J-Bill?
1: Yeah, that was really the beginning. And I think what we looked at, and it was really my boss, Luke Rogers and John Dolcinos and Rush LaSalle, Mm -hmm. were I think the first three people that that they hired. Really, they looked out at the marketplace and there just wasn't a material set available at the right cost point, but even available period to really meet the application requirements to take additive from a a fixtures and tooling proof of concept prototype industry to a production industry. It was about four years ago, a year into the additive journey that Jabil decided, you know, we have to invest in materials because we can't buy the materials we need. We can't source them from a supply chain perspective and meet the requirements that our customers are demanding for the applications that we're pursuing. That was the the genesis of the materials side of it, and it wasn't new to Jabil. Jabil had developed materials in uh, in Taiwan for the last ten years. Before that, for consumer electronics, with our Jabil Greenpoint division,
0: and, and so you were developing these materials to serve these these print cells and the kind of the needs they had because you couldn't find a, a, a good sourced option. Outside, were the first properties that you were targeting ones related to electronics manufacturing?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Our first material that we developed was an was a PETG ESD. Um, I'll call it rev One. So our first version of that material, we were buying it on the open market before, and then we've uh, gradually converted all of our plants over to to our new uh, PET g 800 ESD.
0: When I visited the Auburn Hills facility and saw the print cell there producing the modular electronics jigs, mm-hmm. they were almost certainly using that material.
1: Uh, depends on when it was, but yes. Two years back, it probably was not. Because <laughs> two years back, Jabel Engineer Materials was a half-full building in Minnesota. I think about a year and a half ago, we launched our first materials and it took really about another six months to sort out that PETGESD and get it to stable production.
0: Rapid in Detroit. Was that last year or two years ago?
1: That was spring before last. So that was spring of 19. right? And that they were using our materials at that time. So if you that's when you came through for the tour, then yes, they were using our materials.
0: Wow, you guys have moved really fast with these materials.
1: We have. It's it it makes your head spin being yeah. here, I have to say, Matt. When I started in September of 17, the lease was just being signed on the Jabil Engineered Materials building in in Minnesota. They moved in I think in February of 18. And we launched our first products in January of 19.
0: Wow. Yeah, Yeah, that's really fast. Really fast. Especially, I've been talking to uh, a lot of these polymer companies that have been making, you know, plastics since back in the very earliest days. And each of them that I talked to about additive, they pointed out that Mm -hmm. development of additive materials, it's been on this sprint. And you see a lot of this stuff happening much faster than you would expect. But even... The sprints they were talking about, the numbers you're talking about are, are really impressive.
1: Yeah, it, it's been impressive to watch. I, I, and I don't live at the site, but I, I tra- was traveling quite a bit pre-COVID-19. And it was like uh, going to visit your nephews or nieces. You go there one day and they're knee high. And then you go there again a few months later and they're waist high. And the next thing you're looking up at them, it's been that kind of, it's in that kind of progression. It really is impressive. And, they, and, and we do everything at that site from... We, we say beaker to box. We do produce polymers there from monomer. Hmm. We precipitate polymers from from polymer pellets into powders. We compound. We We do a very critical step that we call system integration. So once we develop a material and we put it in a form factor like filament or powder, we have multiple printers there to system integrate and make sure that we can that these materials work in an additive process. And then we have a full suite of uh, testing capability there to do physical testing on bars, to do powder evaluations for particle size. It's, it's it's as capable a lab as anyone I've worked at. And I've worked from everybody from Chevron Chemical to, to RTP company, a lar- one of the largest compounders globally. And our lab in Chaska is, as good or better than any of those labs that I've worked at in the last 30 years. That's amazing. So it helps us, it helps with that speed, right? In order to develop a material and you having all those resources under one roof means that we can really develop quickly and we understand additive enough to know that when we're developing something, we can validate it on machines that are used in the industry.
0: This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. Through interviews with top innovators, partners, and allies, this series offers a chance to learn from those who have experienced firsthand the impact of additive manufacturing. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs all across the world that have remained open and fully operational during these complicated times. Enjoy our show. We'd appreciate it if you would post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. And if you haven't had a chance to hear all of them, I encourage you to explore the past episodes of our series. I wanted to preserve time right now to shift over to talking about some of your interest in the transformation of manufacturing, how AM is, is making a big impact, mm-hmm. which I think will end up overlapping a, a lot of what you're talking about right now. But I'd love to put put it in that context. Sure. So I really enjoyed, you know, reading your article about 3D printed jigs, fixtures, and tooling, and design for additive manufacturing at J-Bull. And, and I've seen you talk and give tours and, and share about some of the thoughts. Mm-hmm. So I thought we could start with start with jigs, fixtures, and tooling.
1: And just we'll, we'll probably say it over and over again: jigs, fixtures, and tooling. Uh, with JFT is a nice acronym to summarize it up. But it, it it really is a way to transform the supply chain. And COVID is the perfect example of exactly um, how additive and jig fixtures and tooling impacts the supply chain. When you 3D print your fixtures and tooling for any um, type of assembly process, it's been seen over and over again. It's 80 to 90 percent cost savings, but the key is really the 80 to 90 percent time savings Mm. you no longer have to go outside for everything that you need to be machined at an outside machine shop and that's the transformative disruptive nature to me of what jigs fixtures and tooling and additive manufacturing bring to the table it's that ability to again covid's a perfect example okay as of yesterday we need to produce ventilators in kokomo indiana (laughs) We have to put an assembly line together and we have to do it in three weeks. How do you do that? Kokomo's fortunate in that there's a lot of machine shops there and a lot of machining capacity. But you can also 3D print a lot of those fixtures to put that ventilator together in a matter of days and sometimes hours. You can have a proof of concept fixture or even the final fixture in place, Uh, whereas a machine shop, it might take two or three weeks in some cases, in Kokomo, I think it's probably not the best example because it's a machining center for automotive. So there's a lot of transmission plants there, a lot of machine, machinists that were looking for something to do. But uh, Kokomo is a unique place. There's not those uh, that availability of machine shops all over the world. And sometimes they're very remote locations and there's not the expertise available in the tool room. And what, what I always say on the value proposition of fixtures and tooling is, It's not taking away jobs from toolmakers and machinists. Additive manufactured jigs, fixtures, and tooling is supplemental to the machine shop. It frees up that highly skilled workforce to do the things that they have to do that can only be machined and that are complex and need a a human touch and that expertise and artistic ability that toolmakers have. But for everything else, it's an engineer and a couple printers, And you're transforming the supply chain, uh, ramping production at a pace that's really unheard of in the history of manufacturing. We're talking about it's the difference between going from a blacksmith to to stamping. It's it's that transformative.
0: I think that's a really interesting perspective. Not one I've actually heard other people talking about that much. Certainly, there's a lot of interest in some of the parts consolidation and the ease of testing and iterating right there, and, and re- mm-hmm. reduction of, of uh, travel time. But to actually talk about the fact that a lot of these very capable toolmakers were maybe stuck fulfilling parts that weren't really didn't need their expertise, mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, and, and some of my best friends and in industry folks that i've known for forever are toolmakers and they have a skill set that's that's very unique and in limited supply so why do you why would you want those guys working on your simple nest mm. for your phone that's going through a production line print that and let them work on the complex shapes that they have to use that skill set for and free them up to do those complicated things and then let 3d printing and the engineering team take over all the all the stuff that the 3d printing can easily handle
0: so that makes a lot of sense, and that, that combined with the time and, and cost savings suggests that maybe this can be not just a, an alternative way to do this, but might add to the ecology of the kinds of tools available. Mm-hmm. Especially because it's it's not like the tough challenges are going to go away. No. <laughs> so- making parts, which, which might actually, maybe that uh, will be something to talk about briefly. Uh, you mentioned this when we were talking about uh, the general public thinking about COVID needs early on. Uh, the average person thinks of a f- factory, a notion that, oh, they're, they're going to just make some machines and those machines will make this thing. They don't think that you're guiding a process in any case. What are some ways that printed tooling, it, it's a perfect kind of tool to solve problems from a material standpoint and from a um, use standpoint
1: sure the easiest one of all on the jigs fixtures and tooling front is a nest right so anything that's gonna hold or cradle that part so that it can be assembled and a lot of those in our plants especially need to be SD. right so that was why pet g esd was such a focus for us and we use nests to to hold parts while they're being assembled, and then we also use 3D printed fixtures along with the nest for pokeyoke fixtures. And, and pokeyoke is is just a, a terminology of a, a fixture that's going to prevent anything happening that's bad. <laughs> so always you always want to force the operator into an outcome that's good. That's good, blocking off holes that that you want to block off, and putting openings where screws need to go. Or, or shielding something from maybe some adhesive that's in the area and making sure that the adhesive can only be applied to a certain space. Those are the basic, simplest jigs, fixtures, and tooling examples that I can think of that really belong in, in every manufacturing site, in every factory around the globe. And I always say, if you're manufacturing anything, you should have a 3D printer there to help make your process more efficient additive is a lean machine as far as that goes and a good example is at all of our workstations we have bar scanners a little gun looking scanner for reading barcodes as things are assembled now chances are good that you're not going to go out and contract with a machine shop and have them build an aluminum fixture to nest or fix this uh bar scanner on but for four dollars, would you put an ESD safe nest for it? So every time at every workstation, you always know where the bar scanner is. Sure, for four bucks, no problem. Nice. For fifteen hundred bucks, no, I'm not going to go out and spend my money to, to machine something. Uh, another good example is a lot of our workstations have multiple torque wrenches that are a certain torque setting. They're color coded. Sometimes they hang. Sometimes they they sit in nests. And what we did is we 3D printed nests. They're larger than the print area of the printers, but we took those nests and, and divided in two pieces, mated the two pieces together. So now the workstations have a nest for their different torque wrenches. Again, not something you would go out and spend $1,500 on to have a machined aluminum nest, but certainly something you'd spend 5 or $10 on to put a nest at the workstation. And again, back to lean, right? Everything has a place and there's a place for everything. Additive—that's why I say it's a lean machine.
0: That's fantastic. This wider topic of JFT and work handling—if this was the only application that Jabil has for additive, mm-hmm. would it already be enough to really support the uh, investment into materials?
1: No, it wouldn't, wouldn't. Wouldn't. I don't think it would even come close. Yeah. primarily because of the way that that companies account for dollars. But I think our CEO Mark Mondello understands it well um, additive is being an adolescent when it grows up is going to be a production method yeah. and if it's going to be a production method you have to have materials to do that but not only that but you have to have an understanding of the technology and how to apply it so i think about jigs fixtures and tooling is the base of the knowledge pyramid hmm. if you don't start printing jigs fixtures and tooling today when somebody comes to you in two or three years and said i've got this part and i want to 3d print this for production, it's going to look like a Martian to you if you haven't built that base of understanding and and comfort level with fixtures and tooling. And fixtures and tooling have very low bar for validation. If it works and it holds the part, use it. But for a production part, it's going to have long-term testing. It's going to have lots of requirements. It's going to have a lot of things that fixture or tool doesn't have and a specification and a PPAP and all the things that go with production parts. If you have a good base of understanding and you've been using fixtures and tooling for the last few years, making that leap to production parts is not a leap, it's just a step. And so I really look at jig fixtures and tooling as, as the baseline, easy, let's get involved in additive and understand the technology. And then the next level and the next step in that progression as we go from adolescence to early adulthood is okay, we're gonna put in some production parts. Maybe they're simple, maybe they're not too complex, but they're gonna be in on our production product. And then in five years or 10 years, as we go from early adulthood (laughs) to our late 20s and 30s, then we can start to really look at how can we do things like mass customization? How can we implement production parts into our finished products? And and so I think there's a progression there and I think of it in terms of a pyramid and, and I think fixtures and tooling is, is the base of that pyramid not just from a technology standpoint, but from a learning and understanding the technology standpoint?
0: So, how old is additive manufacturing within Jabil, and is additive manufacturing at a different age at uh, out there in the wild?
1: Oh, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I know I've got a teenager getting ready to go to college, and I would say Jabil is probably just getting its driver's license.
0: Typically, when you think of jigs and fixtures and stuff, you're thinking of Delrin, aluminum. How are those problems changing? And where is that taking you next?
1: That's a great question, Matt, because it really leads to the newer materials that we're developing. I mentioned PA 4035 CF and then the new higher performance 4535 CF. Both those carbon fiber filled materials are really focused on aluminum replacement. If we can replace 10% of the aluminum fixtures and tooling in the manufacturing industry today, there would be more than enough for Jable to, to justify the cost of our additive development. Um, and the other one you mentioned is Delrin. Palm as a fixturing material is very common in the machining industry, but no one likes to print it because it's made with formaldehyde. So when that material degrades and our printer, who that's, that's for lack of a better term, dumb and doesn't know when uh a print's failed and it's overheating and, and and melt and degrading material it'll clear out a factory if you're not careful so it gives off some very noxious um, fumes so we are working on a material that looks and behaves just like delrin but it which is a dupont trademark and, and really an industry almost like kleenex in the pictures industry But it looks and acts just like that material, but it doesn't smell like it. So when it degrades, it just degrades and it gives off some smoke, but it's harmless um, for the most part. Oh, that's great. So we're actively working on that material, and we think we're pretty close um, targeting a November release for that material. I've been talking with people about it since that first TCT show that I talked about earlier. And I think there's definitely a marketplace for that material as well. But you talk about Delrin aluminum in fixtures and tooling, that's probably 90% of the materials out there used today. So if we can develop materials that'll be similar and or better than those materials in, in use and they could be 3D printed, I think the industry will uh, expand pretty rapidly in those areas of uh, fixtures and tooling. And again, everybody who's manufacturing should be printing.
0: Fantastic. I, I of course, have to agree with you. Uh, they exactly. also get Ultimakers. But also, <laughs> but also, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you start to bring in the other aspects of this. The ways that you all are validating like part design and getting prints all around your global footprint is pretty awesome. One wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about the materials that you specifically have in your catalog. Now, when JBL additive started approaching the problem, how can you get the materials that you need to really take this process further into how you do business? Were you initially targeting a couple of specific materials?
1: I can talk about the whole portfolio and, and, and where we're headed. Cause it, it in this journey of JBL, although that's happened at light speed, to to develop a materials capability the first few materials we developed were very generic a straight pet g a straight tpu those were our first materials that cuz we had brand new equipment brand new engineers mm-hmm. we had brand new labs we had to get our muscle memory down and sort out how do we how do we develop materials how do we put a process in place to develop materials in a very coordinated way so that when we get to the end it's a robust product. So we use a very uh, regimented process that we call uh, it's our PLCM, our product lifecycle management process, that lays out uh, step-by-step phases and gates where teams review data and progress. And, and it has to exit each gate to, to enter the next so that by the time we get to the, the, the final gates, the material has been tested for thousands of hours of printing we've made multiple lots of material sometimes with multiple raw material inputs and validate everything throughout the process so that when we get to the end and a product is ready for release we are 100 percent confident that it's easy to print it prints consistently and it meets all of our quality standards and and so it took some time. I'll be the first to say the first mm-hmm. six months were a challenge because we had a framework laid out, but we didn't, we had to exercise it and, and refine it. And I think really, uh, to be honest about late 19, after we'd been doing it for about a year, it really started to get more, I think, robust and we started to really, I think, churn out some really nice products what guided
0: the decision for what materials to target first, what material properties?
1: Our, our, certainly our internal usage and in customer interaction, I think that I talked about earlier with with a with Jabil, it really dictates what materials we develop. So there has to be a need, there has to be a marketplace there, a customer driving uh, us to develop something because much like uh, everyone in additive, everybody is super busy. So you have to be selective about which materials you develop. And we really, we have a process for that as well, where we score market size, revenue potential, strategic value of the customer to Jable. And all those things go into the decision about which material we develop and spend our resources on to move forward through our PLCM process. So it, it's not, real clear, but when you start to add up all those things, it becomes very clear by the time you go through the process of which materials we should develop and spend the money and resources to do and and which ones we should maybe wait until a later date or just shelve entirely. Today, we don't really make a PLA. And the reason we don't make a PLA is in our mind, PLA, while it prints fantastically easily and, and robustly, it's temperature- characteristics are not suitable in our mind for a manufacturing environment. So we, we don't view PLA as an industrial material. It's a great printing material, but it's, we don't view it as an industrial material. That's why our first material was really pedgy, prints easy, and, it's, and it, it doesn't have those same temperature limitations, but it still prints fairly easily. Uh, and then we have an ESD version of that because our plants have to require that for, for production. And then we have a, a really, our first few products are, are, are pretty generic in, in nature, and in that uh, TPU is just a straight TPU. It's similar to most TPUs on the market. And then we start to get a little bit more advanced. We developed the TPE SEBS. TPE SEBS, which is our elastomer that really mm-hmm. prints very nicely and, and, and does not need to be dried like most urethanes that are out there, because it's not a urethane, it's an SCBS. Mm. That was, I think, the the first really time we exercised our full capability of what we can do in in Minnesota.
0: What kind of applications would you use TPE SEBS for?
1: So a lot of the applications for that are, again, work handling and really everything from work handling to even feet or for things that you don't want to move. So this is rubber and it's, it's elastomeric. Mm. We've made, had them make feet for ladders and things that need to sit on a desk that they don't want to move, or even a lot of uh, soft touch areas for a nest where you want it to have a little give and not be, have low scratch and mar. TP SEBS is a great solution for, for putting rubber feet on things to protect from moving or putting rubber feet on a nest to keep it from marring or scratching a a part that it's holding nice Uh, it also makes good gasketing material so if you need a seal it works well does it bond with other materials it does bond pretty well to most materials we've done some really neat two-part hard and soft components for end-of-arm tooling for uh, nests where you print the core structural components out of carbon fiber PA4035CF, our carbon fiber nylon, and then overmold or overprint with a soft layer so it doesn't have such an abrasive surface.
0: That application is of interest to a lot of the Talking Additive listeners, and it's something that Additive has promised for a while, but typically with like TPUs, et cetera, you actually need to have like mechanical interlock kind of style solutions. It just doesn't want to stick. Yeah. but this is a solution that where it seems a lot easier to accomplish those goals.
1: It does. T- tpe Sub sticks pretty well to a lot of things. And uh, some nylons you'll have a little bit of trouble with, but most PETG and certainly some of the PA-12s, it, it bonds pretty well to. And if you're encapsulating it, it's, it's helpful as well to overcome that. I, I, I agree with you. I think that's an area of additive that... You don't see a lot, but you would think there would be more of. And I think because elastomers can be so finicky, and that's why we developed TPE subs, anything we can do to prevent that, it helps that user experience. And then right after that, we came with our 35% carbon fiber PA-12, and that material has proved to be an excellent material. It runs on every printer. It's been tried on. It runs without issue. And... It's just one of those materials that just works, which is kind of neat. So Fantastic. It, that, the, that's when we really started to, I think, feel like, hey, we got something here. We really built something that, that, that can really function well from a development standpoint. And that whole facility as well is ISO 9001 certified. It's one of the few filament production facilities, I think, and that the R&D process and the production process are all ISO certified. And then we've been able to even take that, and we've got two new products coming in September that are use a different base polymer. It's actually a 12-copolymer hmm. that has some 6 and some 6-6 six, six in it. And we have an unfilled and a 35-carbon version of that product that actually bumps the properties of our initial PA4035CF up by 40%. Wow. So it's got like a 10-GPA modulus. Damn. And the really weird thing about that is, and I never saw this in an injection molding material with that high a carbon loading, is it's got like 7% elongation. Whoa. Which is contrary to material science <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> history. Because most of the time, anything with that much carbon fiber is 2% elongation or less.
0: Yeah. Brittle. Breaks. Brittle. Yep. Yeah, that's that's what I would associate.
1: Yep. So it's, uh, it's oh, really pretty exciting stuff. And the cool thing is they all print easily. You can print them any open platform printer we do use a lot of Ultimakers to qualify these on uh, we'll use some other open platforms too but both mm-hmm. uh, our 4035 cf and this new 4535 cf i, I haven't found a printer yet that we can put it on that it doesn't work in
0: that's uh that's really amazing there has been a rising interest in composite materials in various functional and engineering materials over the last you know several years but the the expectation has been up until fairly recently, maybe two years ago, you would expect that if you have some pretty exciting and you know challenging uh, functional properties, that you were going to spend a lot of time trying to dial in the, the print processing parameters, and, et cetera. But it sounds like the, uh, JBL Additive is approaching this a different way and is evaluating printability and, and processing ease from earlier in this process. Is that why it's easier to print your range of materials?
1: I certainly believe that. I, th- I think it's two things. I think one it's taken a polymer science approach mm-hmm. to addressing uh, the the problem being and the problem being printability or let's say I call we call it system integration, so how well does that material perform in the printing process? Mm-hmm. And when you take a polymer science approach to it, as opposed to just throwing things that you got from somebody that they said, hey, I think this stuff will work in additive. (laughs) And you really start to change the polymer structure, change the polymer chemistry to meet the requirements of the process. You really do open up that process window. And that's what we've seen. You can still take some of these our best print materials and, and run them poorly if you don't use a, a, the right Cura profile or, or the right conditions, but we provide all that information like many do in in all of our literature and marketing collaterals. But we've really taken a lot of time and energy in developing the polymer from the base polymer chemistry aspect, and then applied functional fillers and additives to help that process even more, and then open that process window so that you don't have to be hundred percent spot on and have to hold those parameters at the exact temperature to be able to to operate or speed or whatever the setting so i think we've really successfully opened that process window you still have to fall within that window to be successful but We've certainly, I think, taken a polymer chemistry approach to getting there. And again, all, being able to do all this under one roof and having a deep understanding of polymer chemistry and a deep understanding of additive process and the lab there to validate it all, I think is, is the secret to developing materials successfully.
0: Help our audience understand some of the kinds of machine and like metal part applications that can be addressed with this kind of material that, that you might not associate with polymers.
1: Sure. Both 4035 and 4535 are really direct aluminum offsets. Hmm. Uh, aluminum uh, is a little bit stronger and a little bit stiffer, but aluminum yields and bends. For any aluminum application, hmm. whether that's production part or a fixture or tool, both 4035 and 4535 would be great, great candidates to replace aluminum.
0: Thank you very much for sharing the whole uh, material line. Four of them are in the marketplace already, and I guess uh, the other two will join shortly. Mm -hmm. Are you starting to see some larger customers out there standardize on some of these materials as really solving key problems for them?
1: We are. We've had two OEMs convert wholesale from popular TPU on the market to our TPE SEBs. And we've seen several OEMs looking at PA4035CF to actually replace current production parts. Uh, because of its strength and stiffness, they're able to actually use it for production parts.
0: Oh, that's that's great news. In uh, JPL's 2019 additive manufacturing and 3D printing trend study, I noticed there was a focus on four areas of fast growth in manufacturing. Production parts, bridge production, repair and maintenance, and jigs, fixtures, and tooling. Do you want to share a little bit about those other areas? I know that they're vast, but just to help us understand how you all are approaching them.
1: I think I can do that. And and, and really when it comes to uh, you know, your question about distributed manufacturing and, and how we, how we view that jigs fixtures and tooling is a base of the pyramid we're using that now with what we call JAMIN, which is our Jable Additive Manufacturing Network, and our printers and Cura Essentials. We're using that platform to take fixture and tooling design from a factory that might make something in Ohio and make that exact same fixture at a plant in Dublin. Or maybe take a fixture from Dublin and, and send that file digitally to Wangpu or Suzhou, and print fixtures for them using the same material and the same platform, but using the digital thread to send that file and, and use that fixture in another site. So that we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel for sites that, and especially with COVID now, might produce the same part, but do it in a more broad geography. So maybe a plant in Europe and a plant in, in Asia and a plant in North America. Again, fixtures and tooling being the baseline knowledge base is leading the way even in distributed manufacturing because that's the next step. Then now we can look at our production part and how can we distribute that manufacturing globally. And 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 right I think in parallel with that is this whole the whole concept of a mass customization that's coming fast, not as fast as as maybe the marketing people say it is. But it is coming. What is going to be the next thing? I don't know. Maybe it's bike helmets. Maybe it's hockey helmets. Maybe it's cough clubs. I, I think it's endless of what can be done on a mass customization standpoint. And and I think the one of the things I we haven't talked about, and I don't even think I've heard many people talk about it, is all of these solutions, especially the mass customization is an incredibly green solution. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the carbon footprint of printing something individually for somebody within 100 miles or 500 miles of where it's going to be used is a vastly lower carbon footprint than it is making millions of them 10,000 miles away and then shipping it all over the world. Yeah, You know, we're no longer shipping large things. When we're full, fully grown adult in additive, we'll be shipping files and raw materials, not finished goods.
0: You talked about lean manufacturing. One of the things that we talked about on Talking Additive is that additive manufacturing allows you to take some of the principles of lean and literalize these lean concepts. You really can make what you need, where you need it, out of the materials that you need. Tell me a little bit more about how you all talk about and think about lean manufacturing and and how that has been helpful to you in, in thinking about the opportunities for additive.
1: I think that that lean is as as an overall concept is one that gets a lot of talk, but not nearly as much action. It just takes a dedicated effort. If you go to any of our manufacturing sites, uh, we're, we are extremely dedicated to lean, and it's not it's not for marketing purposes. It's by necessity. You have to be organized if you're going to manage the chaos that is a $26 billion manufacturing company, or, hmm. or for that matter, uh, a million-dollar manufacturing site that's the, the privately held and, and has to make something. If you're not organized and don't know where everything is, you're always looking for another tool mm-hmm. <laughs> because you can't find what you need. So to me, lean is has got to be fundamental in your mindset and how you run your operations. And Jable's an operations company. That's how I view lean overall. And I think additive is just a, a tool, just like it is for manufacturing, it's a way to help organize and and be more efficient that can really enable you to reach maximum efficiency at your operation. And and the folks that don't buy into lean and don't understand it, I think, are are missing out on the whole concept that if you're going to be successful in manufacturing you have to be efficient and if you're going to be efficient you have to be organized and and lean drives that organization
0: so taking the ways that you all are applying this with producing locally by sending files around would you be willing to to tell us a little bit about how you you qualify designs and are able to use them in this way because this is something that's of you know primary interest to a lot of folks looking to adopt 3D printing. Yeah. They understand the concept, but they, they don't understand the practice yet. Uh,
1: I, I think so. And I think we're, again, in that adolescent environment in that regard. We do it with tools and fixtures now. And we do it to a certain extent with production parts. It's not a secret that we produce parts for HP printers. And what, two years ago, I think it was, we moved that work cell from the printed parts for uh, HP from San Jose, California to Singapore. We had to validate those machines and and those parts and do a final PPAP, but the digital files were all sent from San Jose to Singapore. So I think that's probably a good example of how distributed manufacturing can happen. I think the the trick in doing that for production parts is really marrying the material, the process, and the machine together. And that's what we call that our MPM process. We do a, a whole lot of work to validate a material on a specific platform. For Ultimaker, we would take a material and we would qualify it on an S5 or a Pro Bundle. And do a lot of work to make sure that we are robust in that material runs lots of different parts on that particular platform. Mm -hmm. And we have a process that's really well-defined and validated. That kind of gets you through operational qualification, so OQ. And then the final aspect of that is PQ or or part qualification, so the OQ, PQ process. So we want to get our material and our process on a given platform to be lockdown for lack of a better term and then we apply the part to that so we no longer have a tool that we have to go out and get validated an injection molding tool. Now we've got a part that needs to be validated and do a final PPAP on that machine with that particular material with a defined process. So we use that MPM process to really expedite the distributed manufacturing of a part because it's, I think it's wrongheaded to think of distributed manufacturing as I'm going to take this digital file and send it to a printer and, in some distant land, <clears throat> and it's going to spit out a part, and, and on the first print, it's good to go for production. That will never happen Maybe not never, but certainly not in our lifetime, I don't think. It will always take some level of validation at the whatever site it's going to be at. And we were using the MPM process to really document that and put the manufacturing rigor that is Jable to taking that concept of I have a design. I want to ship it somewhere and print it someplace else. Hmm. Great. You can do that, but you still have to do the validation portion and do the part qualification because it's a new machine in a new location and with a different operator. And yes, the process and the material and the machine are all defined, but you have to do a part qualification to be a production part. Fixtures and tooling is crawling and then production parts is, is really running.
0: So you've developed a process. You've thought through how to make it work. What are some of the things that become possible having this capability? And have you extended this to, to customers or is it mostly internal?
1: We use the MPM process really for for internally and externally. When we develop a material, we develop the uh, process on specific platforms. In some cases, it might be for a marketplace, let's just say open platform FFF. But in many cases, it's specific. Our PA4035CF on S5 is gonna be used to make, let's say, these type of parts. So we get the first part of it, again, the material, the process, and the machine defined and validated, and then we'll take that and ship it out. So it, it, that enables us to, with confidence, go out and say, okay, we're 90% sure that this is going to work on any part in any, in any location. It's uh, been used the most internally on fixtures, but we can use it externally as well for things like proof of concept or production parts that may need a specific material. If we're 90% there on the material for production, Hmm. we can probably drop that in any platform that we've validated on anywhere in the world and within one or two builds be ready for PPAP.
0: It's showing how you're approaching this, how this is getting you through to the parts you need. What are some of the processes and, and steps doing this across wide geographies that you get to avoid?
1: If you don't approach it like a manufacturing process, I think you end up with some trouble, especially from a supply chain perspective. You really need to to document everything thoroughly, and you need to use multiple lots of material to really make sure that you're building in all of the process variation that you would see in a manufacturing process. And, and using that as your design allowables. Because if if you don't, understand what those design allowables are, you won't be able to design and develop a part that's going to be successful.
0: When we started this discussion, you talked about how you were wooed into working for Jabil and exploring additive because there were interesting and intriguing problems to solve. Some of these ways that you all are solving problems are ways that thinking about how to approach processes and manufacturing are shifting a bit. Maybe as as you mentioned, within the manufacturer's mindset. But are there other things like this where you are seeing typical processes that now can evolve if you explore them from a different perspective for additive?
1: We're seeing all kinds of shifting going on about people's mentality. Certainly COVID has changed a lot of shifting mentality as far as what and where to produce things. But from a technology standpoint, I don't have a, a good answer right. because I think there's too many things out there. I think that people are changing their attitudes about, we, we deal with it a lot in our manufacturing sites where, uh, I, and and you guys do a great job, I think with site scans at Ultimaker, mm, great. because I, I think there's a perception at the manufacturing level that it's the exact same way that people looked at cheap plastic in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Was it cheap plastic? Yes. Did it break? Yes. Why? Because it was cheap plastic. <laughs> so, <sighs> if you're just going to use uh, the, the lowest cost material to produce something just to get it to the market or in the application, it's probably not going to work. Mm. But if you put an engineered plastic in that application, it can be stronger and last longer than aluminum or steel. So I think in the manufacturing world, it's a challenge, I think, to, to Ultimaker and to Jable and everybody in the additive industry to educate people in the factory level, people at the design level, and eventually people in the production part level that additive can meet the requirements of the application if you spell out those requirements properly. And you approach it from an engineering and scientific approach. But if you're just going to throw something at the wall and see if it sticks, or you're just going to put whatever low cost material you can into the application and it fails, don't be surprised. And I think that's our role, right? Ultimaker, Jabil, and all of us in Additive is to educate the industry about what the capabilities of the technology are and what they're not. Maybe more importantly, and and how to spell out the requirements as clearly as possible, so that when you do have a put a solution in front of somebody, you're fairly confident that it's going to meet those requirements. Yeah. Maybe summing it up, it it really is all driven by application requirements, and that's what I mean. That's everything that drives us from a part to a material to a recommended technology. It's all about understanding the requirements and if you understand the requirements you've got a better chance of putting the right solution together
0: and taking that one step further you have this incredible capability of developing materials there what does it mean for you and your team that you have the ability to tune and develop and deliver materials that can contribute to the solution space
1: overall I mean, what it what it means to me is that, that and I think we'll know when we won, <laughs> when engineers in manufacturing around the globe think about additive just like they do a CNC or an injection mold or anything else. It's just another tool in the bag. It's not the only tool and it's not the best tool for everything. But when we can define the capabilities enough that manufacturing, everything from managers to engineers down to the shop floor understand how the technology works, what its capabilities are, and what its limitations are, and, and where and when it can be used, it means manufacturing becomes more efficient. And it, it means that we get back to that point where I made earlier where everybody that's manufacturing anything should have a 3D printer because it's as useful in your shop as a hammer or a, or a screwdriver. It has to get to that point. And when it does, it, I think adoption Will have crossed that chasm and, and be at a point where, it, again, it's just another tool in the toolkit to help make manufacturing more efficient
0: that is an excellent and pragmatic goal to reach for thank you for that matt and thank you for joining us today on talking additive
1: matt i'd I'd be glad to sit down and talk with you anytime it's always fun talking additive and and exploring uh, this adolescent world that we live in as we (laughs) mature to early adulthood fantastic didn't think i wanted to go through that twice but i guess we get to
0: thanks again to matt Tarosian from jabil additive we hope that you have enjoyed our 11th episode for the Talking Additive podcast featuring Jabil Additive. To learn more about Jabil and Jabil Additive, visit them online at jabil.com. If you have further questions or to explore any other topics covered within this episode or past episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post your questions on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Additive, all one word. In two weeks' time, we will return with episode 12, which will feature the remarkable Haley-Ann Friedman, global market manager and engineering consultant at M. Holland Company. M. Holland is one of the leading resins distributors for the injection molding industry in the United States. Haley-Ann will share industry insights into how the injection molding industry has rapidly evolved to make better use of additive manufacturing in various tool validation, functional parts, and even printed tooling applications. We explore these topics and more on Talking Additive. Enjoy our show? Subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode, and we'd appreciate it if you could post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. Join the conversation about additive manufacturing by subscribing today at TalkingAdditive.com. Thanks again to Matt Tarosian for joining us for this episode. Thanks also to series producer Hana Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, and I thank you to Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound for the music and episode sound mix. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thanks again to our listeners. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about three D printing's impact. On Business.